The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson in today for Kelly Evans. And here's what's ahead on The Exchange. No surprise from today's inflation print, but ticking up a bit, but matching expectations. And stocks are struggling to stay in the green. We shall see. J.P. Morgan's chief economist will join us with his read on the numbers and what they mean for the economy. Recruiter sentiment falling to a new low ahead of tomorrow's jobs report. We'll look at the most in-demand industries and the top priorities for employees. Plus, two big chip names reporting after the bell today. We will preview results from Broadcom and VMware. And what's the trend? What's the trade? But we begin with today's market action. And for that, we go to Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob. Tyler, we're trying to make it four days in a row, but a little weakness in the middle of the day. I think this is maybe some profit taking towards the end of the month. Just take a look at the major averages here. We were positive up until, oh, 15 minutes or so. The real weakness this week, frankly, has been in the consumer staples names, Coke, uh, some of the general consumer names, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, haven't been doing much. much. Uh, some healthcare's weak mid- midday. United Health, I see, just took a move down in the last hour or so. So a little bit uh, of weakness uh, going into the final day of the month. The real winner on the week is, is tech names. The Nasdaq's up about 3% this week. It's been tech, uh, uh, communication services, and consumer discretionary that are real winners on the day. If you had a theme for the month, it's pretty simple. First and second half. Uh, the first half of the month, stronger economic reports. Uh, rates moved higher, stocks moved lower. Second half, generally we got better economic data, Goldilocks data, rates stabilized, and stocks moved higher. I want to show you the 10-year yield because that's really the story for the whole month. We were 4% at the start of August. We moved as high as 4.3, 4.35, and then back down to 4%. You see that all the way up and back down? That's exactly what happened to the stock market essentially in reverse here. Look at the S&P 500 here. We started August out. We were 4,500. Went down right in line with the yields and then back up to 4,500. See, all the way around. It's like a little bit of a bowl. You could see this in technology, which was the big winner. Here's the XLK. This is the technology sector ETF for the S&P 500. You can own this same chart, same situation was, what, 175 there uh, at the start. Goes all the way down to 165 back to 175. It's a perfect little bowl. You can see this in some of the big tech names. Um, Salesforce had great earnings today. Look, exact same thing. 224 goes all the way down to 203, back to 224. These are all one-month charts I'm showing you, indicating how important what, what's going on with the yields and how much they're influencing the stock market. We got a bunch of new highs, even tech stocks, which had a, a tough month. We have a few new highs today. Alphabet's at a new high. Cisco's at a new high. And Adobe at a new high as well. Finally, if you're not convinced about the market calming down a little, take a look at the VIX, because the VIX was 13 when we started August, when all the way almost to 18, exactly in the middle of the month when the yield spiked up to the highest and back down to 13. Again, inversion looks, looks a lot like the yield situation. So mixed month, let's just call it mixed for the overall markets. If you look at some of the sectors, the big movers on the upside, energy and healthcare, but they've been laggards in the last couple of weeks as technology stocks have moved to the fore. Banks really haven't done that much. That's a little bit of a disappointment for the bulls. 
Tyler, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much. Uh, you know, the Fed's favorite inflation gauge ticking up in July, but still in line with what economists expected. So what does it mean for the Fed's next move? Steve Leisman has been looking at the numbers, has the details. Hi, Steve. Hey, Tyler, good afternoon. Yeah, July data looks like it was powered by a series of one-off factors. And unless they continue, the Fed is likely to look through. So the market's seeing today's data as more or less in line with the soft landing outlook. Spending surged 0.8%. You had Barbenheimer combining with Taylor Swift concerts and Amazon Prime data could power those consumer outlays. But income rose just 0.2%. Wage gains were healthy, but there was a runoff in government COVID support uh, pushing incomes down or, or incomes from the government down. That was partly responsible for a fall in the savings rate three and a half percent, perhaps a red flag for consumer spending ahead. Headline and core PCE inflation indices were around expectations with a 0.2 percent gain as goods deflation offset service inflation. But the measure watched closely by Powell Core Services X Housing that jumped a half a point. But that's explained by a big jump in financial management fees, a result of a stock market surge, not really inflation per se. Now, several economists boosted their GDP outlook for the third quarter as a result of these numbers, especially the spending numbers. But a lot of these factors, from the spending to income to inflation, are expected to ease off in coming months. Taylor Swift and Dead & Co. aren't touring, to my knowledge, in August. The market traded in a way that expects the Fed to look through these numbers. The Fed funds market trades with a 12% probability of September hike and a 43% chance of one in November. That's been as high as 55. Call it a coin flip. Overnight, Atlanta Fed President Rafael Basta calling the current funds rate appropriately restrictive. That says maybe he sees no further need for hikes. A modest gain in payrolls and wages tomorrow could cement that case for a pause in September, Tyler. All right, Steve, thanks very much. And stick around as we're now joined by Bruce Kasman, head of global economic research and chief economist at J.P. Morgan Chase. Bruce, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, as Steve mentioned, the word that is in the air these days, and that is soft landing. What does a soft landing mean to you? And what are the odds we have one? So a soft landing to me means that the Fed, after having tightened here, can engineer an expansion which would last, I think, at least two or three years uh, down the road. Uh, I think the chances for that have improved. I think we have clearly shown the resilience in the economy. This is not an economy where we're debating whether it's moving towards a recession right now. I think we've also taken out the risk that inflation will stay uh, in a very elevated zone. But I'm still somewhat skeptical we can get inflation all the way down and that the Fed is going to be able to take its feet off the brakes. So I think the risks to the economy as we look forward, not for the next three months, but for the next 12 to 18 months, still remain relatively elevated. Risks to the economy elevated. Let's talk a little bit about jobs, because that's going to be the number that we're going to be uh, focused on tomorrow. It looks like some of the jobless claims numbers were pretty much in line with expectations. Nothing alarming there. Um, what do you expect on payrolls tomorrow? And is the job market showing some, if any, signs of slowing up just a bit? So I think we should step back here and recognize the job market was booming last year. We had a number of things that were normalizing, providing that, and we're slowing. We're definitely not going to continue to have three, 400,000 mm -hmm. job growth a month. However, as you noted, the claims data is signaling still a healthy labor market. I think businesses are still expanding. I think settling somewhere in the 150 to 200,000 range is a reasonable forecast for the economy for the next six months or so. Having said that, we believe that tomorrow's number is going to be lower than that. We're looking for 125,000 gain. 
because we think there's going to be a bigger impact of the striking workers, particularly the Hollywood strikes, than most people expect. But I would look through that just like, as Steve was saying, there's a lot of things to look through in the numbers as we go month to month. Uh, I think the payroll number will be somewhat distorted to the downside tomorrow. Steve, you have a comment here? Yeah, well, first of all, I smiled when I heard that Bruce was going to I was going to be on with Bruce today because I had a question for him anyway. So I just want to throw <laughs> this out. Of course, I'm a big fan of uh, Bruce Kasman at J.P. Morgan for many years now. Um, here's the thing, Bruce, t t t today, the goods number showed deflation in the PCE. And then I went and looked up what the BLS is saying about import prices from China. And I'll read you a little bit as if you don't know this, but I think maybe viewers don't really. The price index for imports from China declined 2.3% for the year ending in July, the largest 12-month drop since November 2009. My question to you, Bruce, is the deflation from China already in the numbers, or is there more to come? And will this provide an offset to any remaining or residual service inflation in the economy? So I think there's plenty more to come, and I think you're right in pointing out the role of China as exporting its excess supply through finished goods price uh, deflation. That's going to continue. I'd also note we're going to have some of that come from the fact that global manufacturing has been weak for almost a year now. So one of the things you're seeing in the inflation number is significant downward pressure on finished goods prices. That's not going to go away, but that is not going to be with us for two years. That's going to be with us for the next six months. And I think the big call on inflation is the interaction of labor markets and service prices where that's going to settle. As you mentioned, Steve, there's a lot of different ways to slice that data up. I think the key thing to watch going forward is the relationship between housing costs and health care costs. Health care costs have a lot of reasons to go up at a more rapid pace. Uh, and I personally think we're going to settle somewhere above a 3% pace when the dust settles. How hard is it, gentlemen, I'll let this be a jump ball, how hard is it for, you, for there to be deflation or declining prices when, on the other hand, you have very strong consumer spending, spending that went up, uh, I think it was six-tenths of a percent in the most recent month, highest pace since January, perhaps. If people are spending, doesn't that put pressure upward on prices? Steve? I, I, I'll, take a quick, I'll take a quick jump at it, which is that... Um, it depends a bit on where it's happening. I wonder to the extent to which the uh, concert industry, for example, was surprised by the robust demand and got away with very, very strong pricing. And that might have pushed up things like lodging, even things like airfare. I was on a plane mm -hmm. going to a concert uh, this summer and half of the plane from New York was going to the concert in San Francisco, Tyler. And all of the plane coming back was on there. I think that might have been a one off thing. Industries, I think, Tyler, are still right-sizing from the pandemic, trying to figure out where the heck consumer demand is and where it's going to go. I don't think we are yet or as yet in normal times. Bruce, any thoughts there? Yeah, I think the right way to look at it and keep in mind what Steve is saying about some of the things that were affecting consumer spending in, in July that were temporary is that we're getting a boost to good spending. Good spending was weak as we were running through most of the last year. Manufacturing has been weak. China has been weak. The price pressures downward on that are now boosting good spending and will continue to do so from a for a while. What I'm suggesting is that the disinflationary, deflationary impact of that will be with us for a while, but is not going to persist if the economy is still standing as we look into 2024. And we shouldn't extrapolate this weakness too far down the road when thinking about what challenges the Fed is going to face over the next year. 
All right, Bruce, thanks very much. And I'm with you, Steve, on that but concert t- point. Tyler, yes, Tyler did you get to any concerts this summer, Tyler? I did not. But what I was going to close off by saying, I, I did go. My grandfather was from, from Norway, and we flew to Oslo uh, during the summer. And quite a few people on that plane were going to a Springsteen concert in Oslo. We were off by ah, a day. There you go. There you go. All right, Steve Leisman, Bruce Kasman, thanks very much. Our next guest says better days are ahead for the markets over the next two years, but there's an if. The if is July's rate hike and whether it needs to mark the it will turn out to mark the end of the current rate hike cycle. Here were some names that could benefit from this theory is Kevin Mann, president and CIO at Henyon and Walsh Asset Management. Kevin, always good to see you. So you think well. you think the Fed is done raising interest rates for this time? Tyler, I do believe we've reached the end of this rate hike cycle. That's the what good tells news. You that? What tells me that is with the 525 basis points in rate hikes that have taken place over the last year and a half, we haven't even yet begun to see the full damage on the U.S. economy from those rate hikes. But we're now starting to see it trickle through into jobs data and into consumer data. Remember, 70 percent of our economy comes from consumer consumer spending. consumer spending is strong. Right. But now we've reached $1 trillion in total outstanding credit card debt. Credit card interest rates, on average, are now over 24% in our country. If the consumer now shifts, Tyler, to servicing that outstanding credit card debt as opposed to spending, that's going to slow the economy further. That's going to cause the Fed to pause and this rate hike cycle. That's the good news. The bad news, those expecting any rate cuts like are going to have to wait to the second quarter of next year. But when those rates cuts do occur, well, guess what? Then better days are indeed ahead when rates are lower, yields are lower, inflation is lower, and the economy slowly starts to improve. You've certainly got a lot. I, I take your point on debt. I, I, I wonder about how responsive consumers are to rising interest rates on credit cards because it doesn't ever seem to stop them. I mean, they just keep <laughs> piling up. Uh, the, uh, the, and you look, at, you look on your card and it says, if I carry this mouse and pay only the minimum for this, uh, for the, it'll take me 22 years to pay it off and I will have paid $11,000, a lot more than the $6,000 bounce, but whatever. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of debt that is coming due over yes. the next. It's federal debt that's going to have to be. It is com- commercial property debt that's going to. That is going to be a drag. And you've got student debt repayments beginning yep. tomorrow. And the Federal Reserve realized all of that. We just saw the U.S. credit rating get downgraded because of concerns about rising interest rates and our ability to service that debt, in addion to the political shenanigans that take place every time we have a debt ceiling. So we're talking right? about we're talking about some some ominous things on the debt side of the ledger. But on the uh, growth side of the yes. ledger, it seems like you feel as interest rates either stay where they are or maybe flutter down by middle of next year, that puts a, a good shine on equities. Absolutely. And for all those retail investors watching this show right now that believe they missed out on the bull market, the breadth of the bull market hasn't even taken place yet. But it will towards the second half last of next year when rates come down and so, yields come down. So give me some names that you're looking at or some sectors that you think sure. could benefit under the environment that you foresee. The three sectors that we see leading the U.S. economy forward once rates start to decline are technology, healthcare, and consumer discretionary, including e-commerce, names such as Amazon, which has actually cut back on spending this year 
be due to all the spending they put in place last year around distribution, fulfillment services, and their cloud services. And Americans will continue to spend, but be more frugal in the new year, likely going online. And then on the technology side, Broadcom. Yes, that semiconductor AI play pays a good dividend of about 2.1%. And we're going to hear more good news from them, I believe, after the bell. After when the they bell, report they have earnings. earnings later and then today. the healthcare. I really think the healthcare story, Tyler, we saw the Biden administration announce drug price negotiation, the potential for further price controls, that's to the benefit of smaller cap biotech companies who are likely going to be acquired by the large cap pharmaceutical companies. We're going to have to replace all that lost revenue potential now coming from those price so controls. So they're going to go for smaller cap companies like, name one, but... Like Exelixis. Exelixis, which does what? Which focuses on oncology. They have four key drug treatments right now, about a $7 billion market cap. We think that's right in the target zone of M&A. And so you're... You're looking for M&A there as these large pharma companies that are that have produced those drugs that are now going to be subject to price negotiation. They their revenue declines as a result Correct. of that. And they're going to try and buy companies that make drugs that aren't covered by that. That, uh, that is the thesis. So large cap pharmaceutical companies are facing two headwinds right now. One price controls. Two, a lot of their larger revenue producing drugs are coming off a of patent being subject to generic pricing. Where are they going to turn for that lost revenue potential? They're going to be acquisitive. They have inflated stock prices. They have a lot of cash sitting on their balance sheet. They're going to look to acquire these innovative drug care solutions. Somehow, I never worry about the pharmaceutical companies. Am I wrong? The larger cap ones that have solid balance sheets, that pay dividends, that actually continue to reinvest in their companies, you shouldn't necessarily be worried about them. But if you're looking for growth potential, I really think the growth potential is in the smaller cap biotech over the next two years, not necessarily. I the look at a company like Eli Lilly, uh, and yeah. when there, when the price of insulin was cut back to thirty-five dollars uh, per uh, month, um, that looked like bad news for Lilly. Yes. What do they do? They come out with Munjaro and yep. other drugs that take their place, and then some. Yes. But in many cases, Tyler, those drugs aren't coming from their own pipeline. They're acquiring them from others' pipelines. And if they're going to go to where the puck is, not where the puck is right now, they're going to look at areas such as gene editing, gene splicing, antibody treatments, CRISPR, all those CAR-T-related yep. technologies that are of the wave right now and really providing new healthcare solutions. Those large-cap pharmaceutical companies are going to continue to need to do that to be able to build their, on their revenues. Kevin, always fantastic to see you. Thank you too, Tyler. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. All righty. And for more investment ideas, be sure to tune into a special back-to-school edition of Professor Jim Cramer, Mad Money. That's tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern. He will be presiding. Do not be late for class. And coming up, Academy Sports and Outdoors took a hit after the competitor Dick's disastrous earnings report. But today, a little retribution. Shares are up 12% after the company posted a big beat and raised its forecast. What's behind the surge there at Academy? The CEO joins us next to break down the quarter. Plus, recruiter sentiment down to a new all-time low ahead of tomorrow's jobs report. We'll examine what's driving the decline and identify the industry's most in demand and least when the exchange returns after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a rough month for some retailers after reporting disappointing results. Nordstrom, Foot Locker, Macy's, all down more than 26% since August 1st. Dollar General having its worst month in nearly a decade after today's 12% drop on earnings. And Dick's Sporting Goods might only be down 12% this month, but remember it posted its worst day ever last week after slashing its outlook. On the flip side, shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors bucking that trend, climbing 12% after beating on second quarter earnings and raising its guidance for the year. Joining me now with a smile on his face to talk about those results is CEO Steve Lawrence. There he is. He's a happy man. Why shouldn't he be? Nice numbers for you. Congratulations. How'd you, you, how'd you do it? Well, you know, it was a challenging quarter from a top line perspective. Uh, I think that's pretty well documented. I think what we got rewarded for today was being able to hold on to the margins. Uh, we actually actually beat our, our margin from last year by about 30 basis points. And How'd I think you do that? that? Uh, I would chuck it up to inventory control. One of the disciplines the team's really put in place is strong inventory disciplines. And I think you know this about retail. Uh, if you let your inventory get out of control, it translates into markdowns and inefficiencies in your store's supply chain, and we didn't let that happen. So inventory control is one part of it, and one part of inventory control is controlling shrink. Where's that with you guys? You know, shrinks up. Uh, I think that's a that's a very well-publicized trend that's out there. I mean, the organized consumer crime out there is is definitely a real deal for the industry. That being said, it's, it's kind of insidious, right? It hits you a couple of different ways. Uh, it hits you in terms of the write-off you take when you lose the inventory. It hits you in terms of trying to protect the assets. Uh, you miss some sales, right, because you don't own goods that you think you own. So we've been really thoughtful about taking continuous inventories, updating our accounts, making sure we have the inventory there and protecting our assets. And I think that helped us. Our shrink was still up about 30 basis points versus last year, but uh, much better than where we were in Q1 where it was up 70 basis points. I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time on shrink because I've talked about it too doggone much for my taste. But at any rate, tell me, of sh shrink includes a lot of different things. It can be yeah. damaged merchandise. It can be missing merchandise. It can be stolen merchandise. For you, what percentage is, is which there? Which, how much is theft? How much do you estimate is damage? How much do you estimate is uh, accounting or, or just sort of loss? Yeah, typical, typical uh, you know, belief is it's about a third, a third, a third. We worked hard on the buckets. It's a really good point because it doesn't all come from one place. So some of it's internal theft, some of it's external theft. So put in place controls around that as much as we can. You know, putting high shrink merchandise in very visible locations so that there's always somebody around tagging goods, you know, but at mm -hmm. the same time, mm -hmm. not trying to, to hurt the customer shopping experience. You know, we don't want our stores to become museums. We want customers to be able to interact with the product. Uh, some of it's paper. We've definitely put better controls in place there. And then the defective piece of it, you're right, it's a big deal. So we're being smarter about how we uh, look at the merchandise that's returned and make sure that it's not something that was cosmetic in, in nature that we can fix and maybe sell. Uh, so it's been a multi-effort multi, uh, across multiple A couple fronts. of more quick questions. We just uh, showed a map of where your geographical footprint is. It is mostly in the southeast and south, mid-south. Uh, why not expand geographically? And can we expect well, that? We, we definitely are. So we just uh, did a long-range plan that we announced this street. 
couple months ago. We're in 18 states today, 270 stores. Our goal over the next five years is to open up about 120 to 140 stores. And ultimately, uh, we want to be nationwide. We think that uh, there's a lot. We have a great model. Customers, I love us. We have high customer affinity, and we expect that uh, that's something that's scalable and transportable. And we're looking forward to bringing Academy more people across the United States. You, you began your your comment on second quarter earnings by saying, as we continue to move through a challenging economic environment, what's challenging about it? It feels like the economic environment's pretty doggone good, and that the consumer is spending pretty robustly. What's the challenge? I think the consumer's under pressure. I mean, I think inflation is real. I think household credit card debt's up. Uh, so I think that's making them a little more judicious when they spend. That being said, we have seen them shop. They'll shop during those, those kind of key moments in the calendar, mm -hmm. like a Mother's Day or a Father's Day or back to school. Uh, and then they kind of retreat in the in the lulls in between. And so we've seen that behavior kind of play out over the last 12 months. And so we've, we've planned and are working around that and making sure that when they do decide to shop, we've got great products at great prices. Yeah. The hot stuff really goes, doesn't it? My son has been trying to find this certain type of Nike football cleat. He just can't find it anywhere. Maybe I'll have him go on academy.com and find it there or a baseball bat. Uh, they, they can't seem to find it. Let's talk just very quickly about your deal with Fanatics. What does that uh, what what does that hold for you in terms of revenue uh, enhancement? Yeah, we, we haven't we haven't disclosed a public estimate on what we think that's worth yet. But if you think about it being in 18 states, you know, we do a big license team business and it tends to be centered on the categories and, and you know, teams that are in our local market. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I grew up in Minnesota. I'm a Vikings fan uh, for football. And uh, we don't currently sell Vikings product on our site. So this is really opening up a lot of teams and leagues to kind of that displaced fan uh, in our marketplace. And we think that's going to be a big win for us down the road. All right. Thanks very much, Steve Lawrence. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Keep wearing that smile. We appreciate it. All right. Still ahead. Could SPAC be back? A pair of names going public via SPAC this week. We will look at the results and search for the signs that the world of SPACs could be mounting a comeback. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Salesforce leading the way after an earnings beat. Cisco hitting another 52-week high today. The, and look at 3M there up again, uh, that uh, settlement uh, earlier in this week, obviously helping that stock. We'll be right back. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets uh, right now, you see the Dow is down ever so slightly and uh, small gains there for the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. Uh, despite a recent comeback, the major averages do remain on track to end August lower. Uh, they've got about two hours left to figure it all out. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ on track to snap their five-month win streaks. NASDAQ set to post its worst month since December of last year. In terms of sectors, utilities by far the biggest laggard this month, down 6%. Energy, uh, the only sector set to end the month firmly higher, up about 1%. There you see the divergence. But it's not all bad news out there, no sir. CrowdStrike leading the NASDAQ 100, hitting its highest level since November after posting better than expected results and raising its full year forecast. 
For more on those results, you can head on over to CNBC.com. And we're going to head on over to Pippa Stevens for a news update. Pippa. Hey, Tyler. One of the Proud Boys leaders, Joe Biggs, sentenced to 17 years in prison this afternoon. One of the longest sentences handed down in the Capitol riot cases. He was found guilty of seditious conspiracy during the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The prosecution had asked for a 33-year sentence. Oprah Winfrey and Dwayne The Rock Johnson have committed to make direct payments to people on Maui. The People's Fund of Maui will give $1,200 monthly payments to adults whose homes burned down in the wildfires. The two stars pooled together $10 million for the fund and are asking for donations to extend the length of the support. Nebraska police pulled over a car that was reported to have a cow inside, but the call turned out to be bull. Howdy doody, a full-sized bull was riding shotgun in a Ford Crown Vic with the passenger side roof removed. The divine bovine is a main attraction at parades and fairs throughout the state. Police asked the driver to be careful and to keep moving. Tyler, I would love to see Howdy Doody on the road. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's, that, is a, that is a winner right there. I don't know that bulls actually move. Maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> Pippa, thanks. Coming up, today's inflation numbers may have matched expectations, but what about tomorrow's jobs report? We're going to get an inside look at the positions under pressure and the industries in demand with Recruiter.com's Evan Sohn. And before we head to break, let's get some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Shares of Cummins down 12% since hitting a 52-week high on August 1. A company key indicator for the freight market both here and around the world. Here's what CEO Jennifer Rumsey told Squawk on the Street this morning about the state of the business. So we've seen continued strength in the market, even with inflation and some of those softening indicators. We are projecting that we'll see some softening, though, in particular in the heavy-duty market here in the U.S. Aftermarket is starting to soften for us, and as we go into the second half of the year, we think we'll see some softening in heavy-duty. All right, folks, welcome back to The Exchange. It's time to talk jobs. This morning, jobless claims came in lower than expected, marking a third straight week of declines. And that's on top of yesterday's ADP report telling us that job growth is slowing just a bit. So what will the government's official read of the overall labor market tell us tomorrow? And what's driving the data underneath the surface? Joining us now with his monthly recruiting sentiment index is Evan Sohn. He's the CEO of Recruiter.com, and he joins us by phone. Evan, welcome. I'm going to get to uh, all of those things on jobs, numbers, and so on and so forth. But the thing that leapt out to me in my notes is recruiter sentiment witnesses an all-time low. Not a low for the year, not a low for the past three years, an all-time low of 2.7 out of 5. What does that low mean, and what does it portend? Well, uh, and first of all, thank you for having me on, on your show and uh, chairman of Recruiter.com, but we'll worry about that. Um, it's for the fourth month in a row, the recruiter sentiment is going down. Uh, you're seeing open roles come down. Uh, you're seeing uh, in the recruiter uh, index, uh, only 5% of the recruiters were working, saw 100% of their jobs being new jobs as opposed to backfill jobs. So it's a difficult time to be a recruiter. Uh, there's just less demand for for candidates today. Um, now, at the same time, it's just a very, very tight labor market. But you got to remember, Tyler, when when companies use recruiters, it's usually for those knowledge workers. 
It's usually to fill those knowledge worker roles or very, very large volume jobs. And our recruiter sentiment is down. Again, a year ago, we were at 3.6 out of 5. So a year ago, very, very high marks. A year later, 2.7. And again, as you said, the fourth month in a row. Can we assume then, because you say that recruiters are mostly involved in recruiting folks for knowledge sector jobs, uh, that those jobs are in less demand than they than they formerly were, and that non-knowledge sector jobs, like in perhaps retail or uh, service-oriented jobs uh, in the restaurant and food service industry, hotels, maybe even uh, non-skilled jobs in healthcare, that those are the ones that are in demand. Yeah, that you're, you're absolutely correct. You know, we did a recent study with uh, our partners, Aura, and their data partners, and we looked at 160,000 knowledge workers who lost their jobs from layoffs over the last nine months. And only 35% uh, of these folks were still unemployed. So 65% found unemployment and 35% of those knowledge workers. So now clearly the engineers are faring really well, but it was the HR, the human resource jobs, the sales jobs, and the marketing jobs that really hit the hardest. Jobless claims, we're just showing the number there, down 4,000 to 228,000. On the other hand, I think a lot of people expect that payroll growth is going to slow markedly when we get the numbers tomorrow, something uh, between 125 and maybe 175,000 jobs added across uh, the economy. Is the job market slowing? And if it is, is it slowing to such a degree that it may stall the Fed from raising interest rates again? Uh, well, we... we, we agree that it is slowing. Here's another interesting statistic from the recruiter index. 60% of the recruiters said the salary stayed the same and 20% said they decreased. So that's 80% without seeing salary increase. And I know the Fed was very careful watching the salary levels of these workers and what they're actually demanding. And part of uh, the whole uh, rate hike was to really slow that salary level down. So again, you know, we, we, we want to see a very healthy job market, a lot of recruiter, uh, high sentiment, a lot of high movement. But as you saw from the Jolt report, uh, hires are down and the quit rate is down as well. It's still higher than pre-pandemic level, levels, but only by a smidge. Strongest job sector is? Uh, healthcare. Weakest is? Uh, probably uh, uh, what's, what's weakest was manufacturing. Uh, it's on the... I have to look up the chart there. The, the weakest that we're seeing really is uh, is architecture and engineering was, was one of the weaker ones. All right. Evan, thank you very much for your up-to-date uh, report and analysis. Evan Sohn, uh, chairman of Recruiter.com. Coming up, a twist on a story uh, we may have heard before, a tale of two SPACs. We'll look at the controversial method of taking companies to market and the fallout for investors as a new pair of public debuts goes in opposite directions Stay tuned. The exchange will be right back. All right, SPACs uh, might now be making a... SPACs, excuse me, I started, I jumped the gun there. SPACs may be making a comeback with the mortgage lender Better and electric vehicle maker VinFast, both debuting this month. But after most of the ones that debuted in the boom of 2021 cratered, some investors are asking why. And that's the focus of today's Tech Check with Deirdre Bosa. Let's start there. Why? Why are SPACs back? 
So a few things to note here. Now, as a listing vehicle, SPACs, they won't die, but they do remain as volatile as ever. Look at Better.com. It's 90% plus drop on its debut. And then you had VinFast 20% surge on its listing. Now, it doesn't make any more sense than it did a few years ago. Secondly, though, some of the SPACs that did come to market a few years ago, they may be getting a second life from some of the investors that see opportunity in the wreckage. Let me explain. I sat down with Imran Khan, who was lead banker on Alibaba's IPO, and he helped bring Snap public as chief strategy officer. He's now running an investment firm, and he sees what he calls valuation arbitrage in the space. He's picked up shares in Dave, Open Door, and Grab. Those were all SPACs from a few years ago during the rush. And Dave, when it began trading on the NASDAQ after its SPAC merger, it had a market cap of about $3 billion. Today, its market cap is less than $100 million. Khan says, though, that when he looked through its financials, he saw a company with better profile than a Series A or an early-stage startup, but way cheaper in the public markets. The company has 2 million customers, uh, does around quarter billion dollar revenue, and the market cap is $85 million. When I look at the private market valuation and when I look at this public market valuation, I think we're finding great value in public market. So that's his arbitrage. And he says that he's found that in Open Door and Grab. The value, though, is there in part, Tyler, because SPACs as an asset class have been such terrible performers over the last few years. They've been so beaten down that they look more like a Series A company than they do, you know, a mature company that went public. So let me let me just ask a couple of questions that one of which will be inflected with an extremely cutting and bitter uh, opinion. A SPAC is basically a quick way for an, a company to go public, right? Isn't that the whole point of a SPAC? The whole point of a SPAC is, yes, that's correct, to go quickly, but also for retail investors to be able to get more upside. I mean, that is the whole idea, is if they can go public earlier in their lifetimes, their best growth days are supposed to be ahead of them. So they don't actually have enough financial history to draw on, to present to investors, so they make financial projections. And a lot of them turned out not to be true. Now, what Imran Khan says, and he has a lot of experience with traditional IPOs, he says that they're not bad investment vehicles if you leave out those projections. If you use a SPAC to get funding and become public and then are able to be traded, he says then it's actually useful, right? Because there's these sponsors that can act as anchor investors. So that's why you see Better.com listing on but, public markets because SoftBank has agreed to give them money by but, doing so. But it seems like all that upside, it turns around, they're getting smacked in the backside, the, 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 oh. uh, the, the retail yeah. investors, right? Well, I mean, a lot of that, sponsors that this, took this benefits, of, That this yeah. benefits the financial engineers. Benefits the financial engineers. Here we go again. And, and that the retail investor uh, gets the short end. I mean, with so many financial products, uh, the so-called smart money can take advantage. And that's Damn exactly right. what we saw. I mean, and it's kind of unbelievable. I know, you know, what's been making the round certainly here in San Francisco is Shamath Palahapatiya's role in it, right? He brought a number of SPACs public that have done terrible, and he sold out of them shortly after selling them to retail investors. And rather than sort of just taking that win, he has been very vocal on Twitter or X and saying that, you know what, it's your fault. You should have got out when I got. So he's he's remained defiant. Yeah. And that upsets people. All right, Deidre, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for indulging me. As always, quick programming note, there's still time to sign up for CNBC's Delivering Alpha event. 
on September 28th. I'll probably get booed there based on what I just said. Uh, you can register by scanning the QR code on the screen or going to CNBC.com events. We'll leave the QR code up there for another couple of seconds while you get a chance to pull out your phone and take a picture of it and then go and register for Delivering Alpha. Coming up, what do semis, spandex, and cyber solutions have in common? They will all play a part in our next earnings exchange. You don't want to miss that. Plus, we will preview results from Broadcom, Lulu, and PagerDuty next. And as we head to a break, take a look at the sector. Keep Matt with consumer, discretionary, and technology leading the way. It is split five and six. So there you go. At Real Estate, the worst performer. The exchange is back after this. All right, everybody, welcome back to The Exchange. There are still big names yet to report earnings, if you can believe it. VMware, Broadcom, Lululemon, and PagerDuty, all after the bell today. And they are the focus of today's earnings exchange. And for that, we are joined by Nancy Tengler, our friend and CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tengler Investments. Let's kick off. Hi, uh, Nancy. Good to have you with us. Let's kick off with uh, Broadcom and VMware. Broadcom having a strong year. With help from the AI hype, looking to close its acquisition of VMware, the proposed $61 billion deal has driven VMware's share price higher, especially after the European Commission greenlit the deal in July. The enterprise software, cloud, and AI demand are the focus for both companies into the print, and investors will be listening for updates on the deal, which Piper Sandler projects will close in October. Let's talk about that deal. Are you buying either name, Nancy? Yeah, so Tyler, we we actually acquired uh, Broadcom after the Computer Associates deal. Everyone hated the deal. The stock sold off. We stepped in, and Hawk 10 um, made that deal accretive within a year. So we, we like the name. It's our largest holding across all of our equity strategies in our 12 best ideas portfolio. So from here, I think maybe the ARB has happened. You probably, um, we, we're going to play it with with Broadcom, what we're watching for is, um, you know, is the company going, they are going to deliver the slowest level of sales since pre-pandemic. And so the question is, how slow and are you paying for that? And I think on a relative price to sales ratio basis, the stock is pretty attractive. So we're not too worried about that. And this will be the ninth quarter, if they deliver it, that they will have um, it had an upside surprise. So, so eight, you, last said, eight quarters. you said Broadcom is the largest holding in your in your portfolio of 12 best ideas. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. OK, yes. thanks. Let's move on to Lululemon. Uh, Athletica up 18% this year atop a strong holiday quarter reported in March. Wedbush saying the company's current guidance is conservative as its higher income consumer and better inventory management should allow for more pricing strength amid a broader retail downturn. You like Lulu? Why, Nance? We do. We do. We, we bought it last fall. Um, we like it because the, of the loyal uh, customer, because they're well healed. So they're going to have less impact from uh, student loan repayments restarting. And what befuddled me, and I'm going to be listening for this, is that Chinese demand is expected to be pretty strong. And we haven't heard that from a lot of consumer discretionary companies. So if they can deliver that, um, that's that's important. Then lastly, you know, last quarter their margins improved because shipping costs went down. We've seen other companies say that shipping costs have kind of um, blipped upward. And so that we don't think that's a permanent problem. We'll be watching that as well. But All we right. own it and a weakness we would add to it. All right. Fantastic. And lastly, we have PagerDuty, another enterprise software name. But this one 
having a down year after giving soft guidance last uh, print. RBC Capital Markets saying that there's upside potential in cloud and AI, but significant downside risk if clients aren't willing to pay out for software. You're not a fan, Nancy, but you do see some potential. Where? Yeah, well, I think they've, they've generated solid revenue growth and free cash flow growth. Um, the generative AI news is good because it cuts, cuts cost on their runbook uh, product by about 30%. What's concerning is that it's thinly traded and covered. Last quarter, they actually did get lower guidance, but they um, actually surprised to the upside and the stock sold off 17%. They have exceeded estimate 100% of the time in the last two years, but the stock's done nothing since the IPO. I just think there's better places to be, Tyler. All right. Uh, we began this hour, Nancy, talking about the economy, the potential for a, quote, soft landing. I'd like to get your views on that and whether you think uh, the job market is slowing or slowing sufficiently to stay the Fed's hand. Yes, I do think it's slowing, and I do think it may be sufficient, and that's really what you're seeing in the market. Uh, we started to see uh, softness in, in the job market uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then we also saw uh, new higher salaries coming down. So even though the jolts number was still in the $8.5 million range, or 8.8, .8, uh, and that's still pretty pretty strong. We think that the trend is moving in the in the right direction from the Fed's perspective. So I think a soft landing is still possible. Uh, you know, Ed Yardeni has talked about a rolling recession. And if you look at his data, it, it's easy to be convinced that we might be just rolling through this recession and we'll come out the other side in decent shape. Uh, what a soft landing suggests to me is a slowdown where unemployment, unemployment doesn't rise much. Uh, and where GDP growth uh, may be below trend but isn't negative. What does a soft landing feel like to you quickly? That, and then also that company uh, earnings are still um, positive, and I think mm. we are moving in that direction, and that margins, they've been able to manage margins. So if we can, if we can get that from Wall Street and from corporate America, then I think stocks can continue to muddle along in, in an upward trend. And, and so, therefore, I think you want to be long the equity market here. Nancy, thanks for being ready for anything, anytime. We appreciate it. We appreciate you, your time. All right. And don't miss our exclusive interview with PagerDuty CEO Jennifer Tejada. That's tomorrow on The Exchange. We will discuss earnings, AI, and more. So, Nancy Tangler, we thank you, and we look forward to seeing Jennifer Tejada tomorrow. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.